Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Evolver, sponsored by the Alchemist Kitchen. Hosted by Ken Jordan. Try to imagine a time when yoga was not ubiquitous. It was not so long ago. You might see a yoga studio here or there, say on the second floor of a building on the edge of a college town, marked by a hand-painted sign that could have been hijacked from a Grateful Dead concert. But those places were rare, and what happened inside was basically an intense form of stretching that seemed bizarrely esoteric where people twisted themselves into pretzels. Who would want to do that? When I was a kid, it was understood that real Americans don't do yoga. Well, things have changed. Yoga Journal did a study a couple of years ago and found that 37 million Americans practice yoga, up from 20 million only a few years earlier. We're seeing a huge yoga boom. There are some 24,000 yoga studios in the United States. One in three Americans have tried yoga. 75% of all Americans believe that yoga would be a good thing for them to do. And interestingly, 80% are aware of the history and philosophy behind yoga, that it started as a set of mental practices rather than a physical one with a guiding set of ethical principles. How did that happen? Well, one of the epicenters where this shift occurred is a place called Jiva Mukti Yoga Center in New York's East Village. At Jiva Mukti in the 1980s, Sharon Gannon and her co-founder, David Life, wedded rigorous asanas with Sanskrit chanting and meditation, presented it as a complete life philosophy grounded in Eastern mysticism, and somehow, improbably, made yoga hip. As we talk about in today's episode, people started to show up for this kind of yoga in droves. And so did celebrities like Madonna and Sting and Willem Dafoe, and Donna Karen, who would then talk in the media about their yoga practice. From this, Americans who used to see physical fitness through the prism of bodybuilders like Jack LaLanne and Jane Fonda workout tapes, discovered something new. Fitness had always meant calisthenics, but now they had access to methods of movement that connected them to their breath. So then, because of that experience, they could make sense of meditation as a practice and they could have direct experience of a connection between body and spirit that just wouldn't happen when you do push-ups and jumping jacks. That's certainly how it worked for me. When I stumbled into classes at Jiva Mukti back in the day, knowing nothing about yoga other than it was probably a cool thing to try, I first went there so I could touch my toes again after a depressing period when it seemed like that would never again be possible. But what I really learned at Jiva Mukti was how to breathe and how my breath could lead me to stillness, which is one of the most valuable lessons I have ever learned. Sharon Gannon is a musician, an animal rights and vegan activist, and the author of several books, including her latest, The Magic Ten and Beyond, Daily Spiritual Practice for Greater Peace and Well-Being. In our conversation, 
She talks about what drew her to yoga and what led to the creation of the Jiva Mukti method. I doubt this is the origin story you're expecting to hear. Sharon came to yoga through edge culture and avant-garde performance. For Sharon, yoga has never been about retreating from society and glowing at high frequency at an ashram in the sticks. It's about engaging in a form of art as life. Part of the vision for Evolver included an online marketplace where products made by community members could be offered to others. The Alchemist Kitchen grew out of this marketplace. It's a botanical dispensary that offers the highest quality whole plant remedies, botanical medicines, and beauty products from the best artisanal herbal makers from across the country. You can find herbal products on the Alchemist Kitchen site to help you sleep better, reduce pain, boost energy, find calm, think sharper, and much more. And if you happen to be in New York City, come by the Alchemist Kitchen flagship location. It's at 21 East 1st Street, between the Bowery and 2nd Avenue, on the border between the East Village and Soho. You can have a state-changing herbal elixir from the tonic bar and chat with one of the staff herbalists about the products we've curated and what might be best for you. In my own experience, as I began to be aware of what I eat, cut out processed foods and refined sugar, and get in better shape through yoga, etc. My body's sensitivity to what I put into it increased. A lot. And I discovered that the right kind of plant medicine could be more effective than pharmaceuticals while being gentler on the system. And I started to pay attention more to what my body was telling me, which took some time because I grew up eating the worst kinds of junk and assumed that feeling bloated and sluggish was just part of the human condition. I discovered how the judicious use of plant allies could help to boost my system and shift me from worrying about warding off illness to maintaining a high level of wellness. On thealchemistkitchen.com, you'll find a blog with lots of information about herbal wellness and an assortment of products that will inspire you to see the connection between your body and the plant kingdom in a whole new way. The Alchemist Kitchen is devoted to the power of plants. And if you stop by the spot on East 1st Street, mention the Evolver podcast and get 10% off any purchase of herbal remedies or CBD. Sharon, thank you for being here with us. It is my pleasure. So how would you describe the Jivamukti practice? It is a path to enlightenment through compassion for all beings. That's how I describe it. Yeah, that's a good endgame. How is it different from other yogic practices mm. that may have similarish, more or less intentions? You know, Ken, I don't really like to go into how... I'm different or how this type of practice is different from something. I'm more interested in how are we the same? What similarities do we have? Where can we meet together? That's a lot more interesting and a lot more fun. I mean, we live in a culture which is really obsessed with complaining and blaming and defending and, and all of that and finding fault with others. And I simply don't have much time for that. I think that's a healthy response. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, with Jiva Mukti, we try to do our best to 
give the full package of yoga as we know it, of course. And Patanjali, Patanjali is um, one of our source sources of wisdom. And uh, the Bhagavad Gita, Sriman Bhagavatam. So these ancient scriptures that when I started to get involved in yoga, it seemed that they had been pretty much forgotten by the people who were teaching yoga. And that yoga was being taught just as a, a purely physical fitness exercise. Yeah, okay, it, it can improve your physical health. But my goodness, why settle for that when you can have enlightenment? It's a lot better to be healthy and enlightened than just, you know, healthy. But, it's, but I think in our culture, we're, we're already coming from a place of self-centeredness. And the true practices of yoga help us to become more other-centered. And so Jiva Mukti really emphasizes that veganism, political activism, environmentalism, and uh, music, the understanding that the physical body and the emotional body are very much influenced through sound. That includes external sounds, but also internal sounds, the thoughts that you have, the words that you say. And so when you started doing the practice, when you started doing yogic practices, were you first called to it because of the physical benefits? Was that how you first got excited about yoga? For yourself? For myself. No, I was a librarian in an esoteric bookstore. Which one? In Seattle, the Theosophy Society bookstore in Seattle, Washington. So I was, I don't know what your listeners are going to think about this, but I was studying alchemy at the time, like I, laboratory I, alchemy. So I have a shop called the Alchemist's Kitchen. I know. <laughs> so everybody here is, is down with alchemy. I think okay. that's, that's a premise, a basic premise for the... For anybody, if you don't, if you are not interested in alchemy at this point in the podcast, you should leave <laughs> and go listen to Mark Marin or something like that. And, you know, we'll talk to you later. So, Ken, can you just refresh me and our listeners? How do you define alchemy? As I understand it, alchemy is the ancient practice of bringing spirit into matter. That's how I have engaged with it. Mm-hmm. An alchemist is essentially a trained person who understands this interesting line between spirit and matter and is able to concoct certain kinds of potions in order to infuse them with aspects of spirit that are hard to capture in other ways and enable people to imbibe them. That's my totally lay, you know, quasi-spiritual woo-woo definition of alchemist, which I think most serious students of alchemy would say is wrong but I'm not sure why. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if it's always so good to be so serious about anything. We should be serious, but that seriousness should be uh, a serious approach to joy and um, a sense of adventure, certainly. Totally. Yeah. I I agree with your definition of, of alchemy. To me, it has something to do with magic, and magic is a shift in perception. So it's when you see something a little bit different than you might have seen it a moment before or 10 years before, or you see a more expanded possibility. And you use that word expansive, and I'm really uh, aligned with that. Alchemy, chem, alchemy. Chem was the name 
that was um, given to ancient Egypt. Kem, it means black. The word itself in um, Arabic, it means black, and uh, it referred to the black fertile soil of Egypt where anything could grow. You know, they, it was like, uh, you know, we're talking about thousands of years ago uh, with the Nile River Delta and, um, but the, the Egyptian yogis at that time, they were interested in growing, in growing things, in um, uh, having, uh, having an experience of participation in the creative process of life. And they realized that you had to do it as a, a it had to be a community um, effort, that no one person alone could accomplish that much. That through a, uh, a togetherness, and that is what consciousness means, to know all together, to come together, the con in consciousness with, you know, mm -hmm. with knowledge, consciousness, yeah. So those ancient yogis uh, experimented with um, ways to create or ways to participate in creation or ways to participate in manifestation, if you would, you know, we could agree that manifestation is creation. And you were reading this? In the esoteric library. Oh, yeah. My alchemy teacher, um, I was doing some experiments with cell salts and a microscope. I would meditate and I would put a drop of water that contained a few cell salts. You know, cell salts are crystals. crystal. Mm -hmm. And then I would meditate, the water would evaporate, and the salts would kind of clump together and form a picture. The idea was to try to influence what picture ended up on the slide. And through that experience, I realized the power of one's own thought and how it influences physical matter. The pictures in your mind create the reality that you live in. So oh, you were having that as a, a direct visceral experience. You're doing experiments and you're yeah. trying it out and you're going, oh, this actually works. Yes, absolutely. Who would have thought? It's magic. Oh, yeah. my God. So my alchemy teacher sent me to the um, Theosophy library, and I met a librarian there, this wise old man, and um, we became very good friends. He um, said, hey, you could, you could work here too. And I, I was a volunteer. You know, I wasn't like a, I didn't have a degree in, in librarianism or anything. Um, I was just a adventurous uh, kind of quirky young girl. And um, so that's how I got involved in yoga, because I, I had access to all of these amazing books, and I read a lot, and so it was a perfect fit for me. And you were a writer then, and you know, like in an artist scene in Seattle, yeah. out of school, and yeah, late seventies, yeah, early eighties, yes. that kind of mm -hmm. yeah, early seventies, yes, early seventies, yeah. And yeah. so you know, kind of a hippie scene, but around that time, you know, people who were doing yoga were basically doing it not as a spiritual practice so much; they were doing it for exercise. When did you start to do the movement for yourself? When did you begin to feel it in your body? Mm. I, I had a bad accident. I broke my back, slipped down some stairs, and fractured a vertebrae. Oh, God. 
Yeah. And I thought, you know. And it was around this time that I moved to New York City from Seattle, 1983, that happened. And um, I met a woman who was working in David Life's Life Cafe. Ah, the Life Cafe! The infamous. I have such beautiful memories of the Life Cafe. You have no idea how much time I actually spent in the Life Cafe back in the early 80s. I do know because do. I, worked, I worked there too. I was a waitress. So, <laughs> so you know that we rarely paid. Yeah. <laughs> and I also know David was a very kind and generous restaurant owner. He sure yeah. was. Yeah. He did, a, he did an ad trade with the East Village Eye. And my partner at the time was a was a staffer there who they didn't get, they didn't pay, but they gave her free food at the Life Cafe. <laughs> so we were there three times a week, so easily. It was a wild and crazy place it and was. time. Yes. yes, it was on the corner yeah. of Avenue B and 10th Street, facing Tompkins Square Park. And as I recall, now I may be my memory is blurring, but the floor, it was like back then it was pretty post-punk, East Village sort of scene and things were fairly like either falling apart or in this in in the state where they look like they might fall apart but you're preserving it right and so the floor of the life cafe as i recall was all broken tile it was if the store had been found sort of semi-abandoned swept out cleaned up so it would pass inspection but then left Well, you're not too far off. Um, I mean, it was an abandoned storefront that um, David, he, he came from Michigan, and he wanted to have an antique store. And so he brought a whole bunch of antiques from Michigan, um, and he thought he'd open this you know, antique store. And uh, he, I wasn't there at that time, but he told me that the floor really had a huge hole. Yeah. Like a huge hole, like a 10 by 10 foot (laughs) hole in the floor right down to the basement. So he had a whole bunch of tiles. Uh, You know, there was a hotel being torn down and he went in and and pulled up the tiles. And um, I mean, he was a big recycler, you know, even then, back then. And so he redid the floor. And as he was working on the cafe, and then he had all these Life magazines. Right. And there were holes in the walls. Mm-hmm. And he patched those holes <laughs> with the magazine. Life magazine, which were then shellacked over, as I yes. recall, right? So it was Life yes. magazine was the wall was the wallpaper. And that's all why shellacked. It became Life Cafe. <laughs> that's right. Because of that. But anyway, I met a wonderful woman who was teaching yoga and she was also a waitress at the Life Cafe. And she said, I can help your back. And I'm like, with yoga, you know, my idea of yoga was, you know, f- people with their foot behind their head and doing these contortions. And I would, you know, it was hard for me to walk. And I was like, no way, I, this is crazy. And she was very persistent and very kind. And uh, so one day I went to her class and she taught at the University of the Streets. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah remember that, goes that back. place? That yeah. goes back. Yeah. Yeah. It was very painful, the class. But I instinctively knew, wow, I could feel like energy and I could feel like, like I already, through my studies of alchemy, I already knew how to direct my mind into my body and to 
I knew some pranayama practices that my alchemy teacher had taught me. The breath is a way to access prana. Right. And prana is the life force, what animates all living beings and things, not just uh, human beings, but animals and trees and plants. And, you know, prana runs through us all. Or chi. Or yeah, using that's other, a, t- other that's terms from other ter- cultures oh, yeah. and energy. It's true. And, yeah. It's true. Mm-hmm. But it's recognized as spirit, actually. Spirit. The Catholics call it the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. And visualize it as a white dove, you know. And the, the goddess worshipers in uh, Calcutta call it the Shakti. But it is the spirit. The spirit animates life. You began to do some basic yoga. Yeah. And my back got better. And then I, I could apply what I had already been studying, like on my own. Because you had a deep esoteric background by this point. You'd been really studying, which, just to say, in those days, was not that common. Folks who were in that kind of downtown New York, post-punky performance art scene, neo-expressionist paintings, like a thousand galleries all over the East Village back in the day when it was all abandoned storefronts and galleries for about two and a half years. All those places which are now, you know expensive watch shops and $10,000 shoe places. Okay, those, those were the days. But there wasn't a lot of interest in that kind of esoteric knowledge in that scene. There was a handful of people, maybe Peter Lamborn Wilson, who's an old friend of yours, right? He was kind of in that stuff. Peter, Peter moved to Woodstock, lives near, nearby me now. Oh, sweet. Yeah. yeah, Peter is an amazing guy. Yeah, for those who don't know, He's also published under the, t- the name Hakim Bey and came up with this concept of the au- temporary autonomous zones back in the day. And chaos theory. And chaos theory. <laughs> oh, my God. So this is the world that actually birthed Jiva Mukti Yoga. Yes, yes. When I was in Seattle, I, I had this thing called the Salon Apocalypse. It was uh, something that I started, and I even made membership cards. And, uh, <laughs> and we met like sometimes once a week or sometimes once a month, and I would establish a theme. The themes would be things like um, murder, famine, greed. We would get together and we would have to present something related to that theme. You were encouraged, or I encouraged everyone, to present not just by blah, 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 blah talking, but in a more holistic way. So people made little films or they did uh, dance, uh, you know, this idea of just sitting down and listening to somebody else lecture was really not what I was into. So, you know, try to make it more interactive. And when I came to New York, I continued with those salon apocalypses. And um, I met Julian Beck and Judith Molina. From the Living Theater. Yeah, yeah. Who were hugely important in creating a engaged a form of theater that involved the audience, like everybody on stage. In 1968, they, they toured, was it, it was Paradise Now, where they would lead the audience at the end of the stage, at the end of the performance onto the stage, and then they would all get together and march out of the theater and do protests on the street. And sometimes march out of the theater without any clothes on. I once met somebody who was conceived on the stage of the living theater. Just yeah, to these say. things happened. <laughs> um, listeners, yes, they, they happened. <laughs> uh, 
And they are continuing uh, to happen because um, that's the way time is, right? Well, actually, I mean, this is not what I've been Oh, not at all. No, it's, it, well, it's all happening right now. Eternity is happening right now. But also, it's important to understand the lineage story that you're in. And so what's fascinating and real to me is that the energy of that moment gave rise to the way that you and David life, who you became partners after the cafe or during the cafe, you created Jiva Mukti Yoga. And that brought, I think, a very powerful energy into the mainstream now of the culture. It was birthed in that wild place. And right. it was a very different way of thinking about yoga than had been around in the years before. It's true. And before I came to Seattle, I came to, I mean, before I came to New York from Seattle, I came with my band, Audio Letter. And that's how I met David, because the band played at the Life Cafe. Brilliant. We were an avant-garde art band. We created a magazine, and that magazine was called Patio Table. And that came out of the salons, the salon apocalypse. We had many fans, and one uh, of our uh, uh, very uh, supportive fans was Jim Fleming. Oh, of course. Yes. I know Jim, yes. yes. Now tell, me, tell people who Jim is. Oh. Jim is a genius, and Sever Latigere. Latigere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Peter Wilson was their friend. And so when Sue Ann and I, Sue Ann was the guitarist, Sue Ann Harkey, my dear, dear friend and the guitarist in the band, when we moved to New York, we wanted to meet Jim and um, Sever, and, uh, and we, went, uh, we went to Columbia. Jim was a professor, and um, <laughs> and anyway, I started writing some articles for um, his publication. Semiotex. Semiotex, Which yeah. introduced French theory to America. Yes. The Society of the Spectacle. Yes, all of this. All of that. Jean and Baudrillard, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, Foucault in a big way. Yes. Yeah, very influential, hugely important little... Uh, small pu small press publishing operation. I actually was once the chairman of Semiotex, for what it's worth, for about a year. Ken, how how did I not know that? I'm so it was a secret. We didn't <laughs> tell anybody, <laughs> and I didn't really do anything. But it was a kind of a favor. Um, but anyway, yes, so you know, yes. this is how that happened, and so that's how I met Peter. Peter came. Peter Lamborn Wilson came to the salons that I was doing on the Lower East Side, and you know. That And I was practicing yoga at this time. Some people knew that I was practicing yoga, and then eventually David started to practice. But we were still doing these performance pieces and the music. And But then more and more people asked us, hey, do you know anything about pranayama? How do you stand in your head? What's a mantra? What happened was there seemed to be more interest from our fan base uh, in yoga rather than seeing our performances. Oh, that's so funny. And so we just sort of it organically shifted into that uh, area, that more, teach more teaching of yoga. So you began to teach the classes sort of in the context of the other performances you were doing. Yes. That's Because great. that's, you know, I brought music into the classes because that's what I was interested in. And I brought magic and uh, mysticism and all kinds of, because that's what I was interested in. So at what point did that kind of performance scene turn into a school? Because you opened up 
on Second Avenue, the one I remember first was the the, the it was the studio on Second Avenue between Ninth and Tenth Streets, where you had to walk upstairs past the restaurants. If I remember, they were downstairs on the second floor. Holy basil. Holy basil, yeah. right? Is so that you know Krishna worship is the holy basil Tulsi plant? So it was kind of a coincidence, you know, that we were right above the holy basil. <laughs> well, we were in another location. Previous to that, yeah, I had a memory of that, but I, I, I'd on never Avenue been there. On Avenue B and Eighth Street, that was really the first uh, Jiva Mukti Yoga Society, is what it was called at that time, and it was in a basement of somebody's loft, and they lost their lease, and then David found this other space, and I really was reluctant. I did not want to teach yoga. I I wanted to practice yoga. I was very happy you know, writing poetry and doing strange music and studying alchemy and all of these things. And I, um, David actually kind of guilt-tripped me. He said, um, look, all these people want you to teach yoga. Like, you would disappoint them. And I was like, oh, come on. They don't care, really, you know? Come on. <laughs> That's how it happened. And I, but I said to him, okay, if I teach, you will also have to teach. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So you guys, you were starting to teach like this. You found the space in a friend's in a friend's basement, basically. You're turning it into a spot where you can bring people in and have regular classes during the year. You're sort of thinking about what the looking, I guess, at what other yoga studios were doing in New York at that time. Sort of in terms of what's a beginner class, what's a more advanced class, and sort of trying to apply that to what you guys really wanted to do. We didn't apply those kind of. We made up our own model. Okay. And uh, it was called the open class. And an open class meant open to anybody, everyone. Um, <laughs> the open class then would be led, did you have, by the two of you guys trading off, developing <laughs> your own practice essentially as part of this, as a process of teaching and developing for yourself. When did you first go to India to study more deeply with teachers there? 1986. I was teaching yoga at a place called the Body Electric on Broadway. It was an aerobic studio. Vaguely recall this place. But what I a name. Yeah, Great Body name, Electric, right? good name yeah. for yeah, for what you want to do. <laughs> and I was teaching because, really by default, my yoga teacher, the waitress that I had met at the Life Cafe, Tara Rose, incredible teacher, I wanted her to come to the Body Electric to teach. And there were several false starts. Anyway, the owner said, hey, there's so many people in that classroom. Tara hasn't shown up yet. You better go in and teach the class. And that's how I became a yoga teacher. So trial by fire. <laughs> yeah. 
And but I really didn't feel that I was qualified. And so I went to India and David went with me. So where did you go and how did you find a teacher there? We, uh, well, through Peter Lamb, Peter Lamborn Wilson, he and I were members of the Libertarian Book Club. What was that? Do you remember that? No, I don't remember that. <laughs> it was an obscure political little club. Anyway, you know, it, nerdy people in their heads. You know, I was one of them. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Okay, that I understand. Okay, but Peter came over to the apartment one day, and he had a stack of letters from a Swami who called himself the Anarchist Swami. And he said, Sharon, this very interesting guy keeps writing to the Libertarian Book Club, and none of us have the time to really respond to him properly. We think you're the person to become his pen pal. You've been nominated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I said, why me? Well, you seem to like know about India and all that stuff. And I, went, I didn't really know too much about <laughs> India. <laughs> anything at that point, you know? And I still don't really know anything about... (laughs) (laughs) When you get to a certain place, it's all just beyond. It's like, the more you know, at a certain point, it's like, why even pretend that you understand? I I appreciate that. I aspire to be in that position. I think Fred uh, Allen Wolf, the physicist, has this great saying, if I can remember it um, correctly, he goes, why be in the know when you can be in the mystery? Beautiful. Yeah. 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 Okay, so you got a pen pal. So I had a pen pal, uh, this Swami. Where? In South India, BR Hills in South India, one man ashram. That's he just, he he just by himself, he was Mauna, he didn't speak. That means not speaking, Mauna. But he'd write. He didn't say that. (laughs) He would write. So I wanted, you know, I said, David, we should go and visit Swami Nirmalananda. There were a few places that, you know, we wanted to go to. And it was a magical journey. We had mystical experiences and we met saints. Just one thing led to the next. And we would find ourselves in a cave with a yogi who'd been living there for, you know, a long time. And uh, we'd be hanging out with him or this or that. I, I don't know. It was just one of those continual, like a sequence of serendipitous, synchronistic experiences where things just get introduced. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Gorgeous. This is how these things happen. They get Blessings, they get, blessings, yeah. grace. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Certainly not from my own efforts, for goodness sake. And I certainly wasn't qualified. It's grace, you know. I don't know. Brilliant. But anyway... Then we stayed in India that first time, I think four months. And then I came back, and then that uh, aerobic studio, the Body Electric, had closed. I was like, oh, okay, great. I don't, uh, I'm not teaching yoga anymore. That's good. I can just devote myself to my studies. But some students who had been coming to the class said, no, 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 no. You have to continue and and one of them had this basement loft on Avenue B and 8th Street. So that's how we got into the basement loft. And that's how it became the Jiva Mukti Yoga Society. David actually coined the name. He learned about that concept in India, a Jivan Mukta. A Jivan Mukta is someone who lives liberated. 
he kind of shortened it a bit to Jiva Mukti instead of Jivan Mukti. That's still grammatically correct? Well, it's, it's, it's a kind of a tweaking of the Sanskrit, but um, it's easier for Americans to pronounce. It's so, catchy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then we went to 2nd Avenue and 9th Street, and we were very popular, you know, like right away. Yeah. Yeah, I like, remember that. Lines of people. I mean, that popular. So what was that about? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, it's not. Let me let me just to preface this for the people who I'm sure many people know this, but some people don't. Popular like Madonna was there, right? And Sting, yeah. and Russell Simmons was a regular for many, 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 many years. Joan Jett. Joan Jett. That's good. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. many. Christy uh, Turlington. Christy. Oh, certainly. Yeah. That was later, but no, uh, no, that was on Second Avenue. Oh, Second. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we went uh-huh. to to Christie's. Um, Graduation from NYU, I remember. Yeah. So you're deep in the esoteric work. You're exploring it through this kind of art slash alchemist kind of frame. One of the things I remember so specifically about what those classes were like for somebody like me, a kind of uninformed gringo, you know, confused young person in New York who had no clear career. So they were perfect because that was the kind of teacher you got, me. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't easy. It was hard, right? Yeah, sort out the riffraff, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it did, Uh unless you were serious. I mean, serious in a fun way. (laughs) That, That notion of fun is not the standard pop notion of like, you know, daytime television fun, right? This was rigorous, and it really put you through something, and you were connecting to a a tradition of practice is what it felt like. It was like you were bringing a lineage connection into the work you were doing in New York, and that was very early on, which is not, generally speaking, the strategy that people follow in order to be popular. Well, we brought in veganism and animal rights, and that certainly is not commercially like viable, you know, like at that, certainly at that time. You see, back in Seattle, right before I had broken my back and had the accident and came to New York, I saw a film that really changed my life and really put me on this path of being a yoga teacher. And that film was called The Animals Film. I went because I saw a poster and the poster had Robert Wyatt's name on it. And so I was a huge fan of the musician, Robert Wyatt, from The Soft Machine, a British musician. And um, Julie Christie, the actress, did the narration. That was the first feature-length documentary film that was an animal rights film that showed graphic, you know, undercover footage showing all the ways that we human beings are exploiting animals for food, clothing, fashion, experimentation, uh, so-called scientific experimentation. Uh, and I, you know, I, I knew those things happened, but I really hadn't seen it like that on a big screen. Most people vaguely do know what's happening and don't look. Well, I looked and two hours and 20 minutes, that film was that long and afterwards, I questioned everything that I was doing. What was, what was it, what art? 
you know, that seems superfluous to me. If I'm not doing something with my life to challenge the insanity that I saw on that screen, then I'm not doing very much with my life. I want it to be useful. I want it to contribute something worthwhile with my life. And so it caused me to question everything. And I became a vegan shortly after that. And then, like I said, I had studied these yoga books. And so I came across a sutra in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, Stira Sukham Asanam. That's a sutra where Patanjali describes asana. But he describes it as asana means a seat. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, and I certainly wasn't a rocket scientist, to realize that seat means connection to the earth. And connection to the earth implies a relationship to the earth. So what Patanjali is saying, which is, you know, forms the foundation of yoga philosophy, he says, if you want enlightenment, your relationship to the earth, and that means all beings and things, you know, human beings, yes, animal beings, water, lakes, ocean, trees, plants, everything, your relationship to the earth should be mutually beneficial. That did it for me. That was like an aha moment. It was like, we human beings have been living in a culture which has told us the earth belongs to us. And because we're human beings, we should be able, you know, we have the right to exploit however way might benefit or bring us profit. Well, yoga is saying just the opposite. The earth doesn't belong to us. We are earthlings. And if we want to be happy, truly happy, then that happiness can come if we relate to the earth in a mutually beneficial way, not in a self selfish way, not one-sided relationship, because we all know a one-sided relationship is not considered a good relationship. <laughs> so that made me feel like I could bring that message, that the yoga was a perfect platform, because I had tried to bring the message with my band and with my performance pieces, but it wasn't interactive enough. So it wasn't until I came to New York that then it all came together. And I was able to then bring all of that, like the devotion to God, the ahimsa component, the music, the Sanskrit, meditation, all of that together. To, and, and the redefining, let's say, of the term asana. And how do you feel it was redefined? as relationship to the earth. Yeah. What is it about the actual yoga practice, the practice yes. for students coming into the class, right, that helps them mm -hmm. feel that connection to all living beings? Our bodies are made of our karmas, meaning our actions. Karma means action. We carry in our physicality, in the muscles and bones, the way the blood flows, we carry the imprints of every action that we have ever done, which we have left unresolved. Now, to resolve an action, you must take it back to 
its origin. That's how you resolve anything. Bring it back to its origin. What is the origin? According to the yoga scriptures, the origin of everything and everyone is joy. Joy. If we're experiencing anything less than joy, like if we're experiencing depression or anger or frustration or jealousy or self-consciousness or worry or all of that, it's not real. You got to keep going. You got to keep going till you pass through it and get to joy. And that's your true nature. So the asanas have been developed, you know, thousands of years ago by yogis like you and me experimenting in ways to be happy, to feel joy. The standing asanas connect to the muladhara chakra. The forward bending and hip openings connect to the swanistana chakra. And these are which chakras specifically? These are the seven main chakras. And each one of these chakras has to do with how we perceive reality. So the magic in yoga happens when we shift our perception of how we perceive reality, right? So for instance, the first chakra has to do with parents, home, money, career, all of that. So if you're practicing trikonasana, you know, triangle or downward facing dog, and you're feeling resistant, you're feeling pain, you're feeling tight, it can be traced back to your relationship with your parents or with money or the environment. The muscles in the body will respond with tension around certain kinds of traumatic relationships. Absolutely. The organs will feel, will, will, will get, you know, will we'll feel stress yes. in response to certain things that happen to you in your life that are not necessarily so wonderful. So during the course of doing the movement, doing the, 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 the breathing and the stretching in the asanas, you can trigger that tension. You can trigger that, those become imprints, aware of those imprints. Those emotional imprints. So you can work with them. Exactly. But unless you know that, then you might practice for years and years and not really get anywhere because yoga will give you anything you want. Like whatever's in your mind as you're practicing will determine, Patanjali says this, will determine the result of the practice. So if you want to get limber and strong, you'll get that. But if you want to resolve your traumatic experiences and your relationships with others and you think of that when you're doing it, then you're going to get that. It's about intention. It's all about intention. Our minds are that powerful. And that's what I learned back in my alchemical studies with the cell salts and the microscope. It's all the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You really brought your study of the esoteric work, the Sanskrit, into the way you were teaching the practice and developing the practice. Did you have a living teacher who really helped you understand how to shape that in the class for students' experience. Sham Das was a very important teacher for me. Sri Brahmananda Swarasvati, Swami Nirmalananda, the anarchist Swami. I mean, he was a vegan. He was an Indian man who was a vegan and an animal rights activist. You know, that's, that, was, that was very unusual. And Sri K. Patabi Joyce. So these were our main teachers who helped us in the early development of Jiva Mukti Yoga. Did you feel that you were taking their lineage practices 
and staying within their line? Or did you feel like what you were doing was sort of taking a little bit of this, taking a little bit of that, and weaving it together into something that felt right to you? I had a calling, yeah. These teachers knew that I was an animal rights activist, and that's why I became a yoga teacher. And I was interested in these things and wanted to bring all of that into a modern-day presentation of yoga. And they gave me their blessings. So I didn't work against anything that these enlightened beings were doing at all. In fact, I, I wouldn't dare to, for goodness sake. I mean, I was extremely humble in their presence. The fact that they showered me with blessings and I, you know, even gave me the time of day was, was a huge boon. But Tabby Joyce, he said to David and myself, he said, I can't bring the message that you're bringing because I don't speak English very well. You can speak to these people in ways that I can't and I'm not going to. And so it was that encouragement from, from all of them. I mean, if I didn't have that encouragement, I would not have embarked on it. I would have dropped it. Yeah. Because you need the blessing of the guru. You want that, you know, because then they're your friend and they're always with you. They're good friends to have. Enlightened beings are good friends to have, for goodness sake. The practices that you, that you teach in class... People can discover, you know, can go down the journey. They can explore and discover all kinds of, uh, uh, not only their physical, but a spiritual connection. It's only limited by your imagination, by the limits of your imagination. But then you go home, and a lot of, for a lot of people, not coming to class, if you don't go to class every day, you don't go on a regular basis, something happens, you get taken off your path somehow. It's valuable to be able to do stuff at home, right? Tell me a little bit about your new book. That's for those of us who can't always get to a yoga class. And I'm one of those people, so I had to develop my own morning practice, something that I could do easily that was effective and that I could do in a short amount of time. And that's what's outlined in this book. And the book, which is The Magic Ten. What is The Magic Ten? The Magic Ten and Beyond. And Beyond, okay. And Beyond. Okay, well, let's just start with the Ten, and then we can figure out Beyond, maybe Beyond's a second interview. <laughs> Well, these are practices that I do. Uh, these are 10 practices that I do every single day at home or in a hotel room or wherever I happen to be. And the first practice is called gratitude. And it happens when I'm lying in bed. <laughs> you can practice you to... yoga when you're lying in bed. Oh, what a concept. <laughs> oh, my God. Now I'm really going to go there. <laughs> it's time for you to be a yogi. And, you know, I think it's a very good thing to wake up in a good mood every day. Why not? You can train yourself to do that. I discussed that in, in practice number one. It's called gratitude. And it's about uh, training yourself to be grateful and appreciate your life. The first thing that you, the first thought in your mind in that chapter, there's actual practical ways to do that. And then the second practice also happens when you're still laying in bed. Oh, man. <laughs> 20% of the practices are be even before you put your foot on the floor. That's right. I love it. That's right. I, I love sleep. I love being in bed. You know, I love resting. And uh, doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Well, actually, people do say, oh, Sharon, you do this, you do that. You probably don't sleep very much. And I said, actually, no, sleep, I really like sleeping. 
12 hours, that's good. 10 hours. Ooh, that's yeah. good. LeBron James, 12 hours a day. That's how he does it. That's how I think I can do all the things that I feel I need to do. Shashupti. You know that term? It's a Sanskrit term, shashupti. Shashupti means deep sleep. And it's when we are, you know, we're at one with our source. We're in that dreamless state of uh, eternal happiness. It's a very good place to be, at least once in a 24-hour period. How many Jiva Mukti centers are there now? Many. Many. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Around the world. Around the world, yeah. Moscow, Munich, Berlin, London, Mexico City, Sydney, Australia. That's pretty good. Uh, Many, many. That's quite a few. The influence that you've had as a yoga teacher and as the creator of of this particular method, but also like the ripple effects of approaching the yogic practices with such a respect and connection to their source has really shifted the way that we think about our connection between the body and spirit in the West in a massive way, in a beautiful, beautiful way. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you. Just showing my appreciation. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. seems like we've been talking for many, many hours. It's only been three hours. People got a lot of time. You can stretch time. You're like a magical being, Ken Jordan. It's fun. Uh, (laughs) And if people want to find out more about what you're up to, um, where should they go? JivaMuktiYoga.com. And to hear about the book, learn about the book, do you have a book website? It's on JivaMuktiYoga.com. Thanks a lot, Sharon. Om Shanti. I want to thank Sharon Gannon for being on the podcast today. It was so great to talk to her about how yoga, this ancient Eastern practice that has this particular esoteric history, was kind of reshaped by the downtown avant-garde art and culture of New York in the 1980s and turned into something that could then go and touch people all around the world, being expressed in a totally different way than how it had been practiced in India for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And I want to thank you all for being here with us today on the podcast as well. If you like what we're doing on The Evolver, please tell your friends. Let other folks know about this. Leave a comment on iTunes and help us uh, reach more people. I really appreciate all the feedback we're getting, which is wonderful. It's just really been very cool to to be doing this and taking part in this. You can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, on Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And our email is theevolver at evolver.net. Thank you to our producer, Jose Alfaro, and to all the people at Acast. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album, The Secret Song, And our interstitial music are tracks by the human experience, Sunu from his album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Go check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others.
catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 